Hello church, if you would open to the book of Judges, chapter 6. Judges chapter 6, we will be studying all of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7, but I will only read verse 11 to 16 right now. This is God's Word. Judges 6, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the tabernacle at Orpha, which belongs to Joash, the Aberazite, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, Why then has all this happened to us? And where are all His wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And so, Father, we thank You for these words that we believe You spoke as this angel of the Lord to Gideon a few thousand years ago. And Lord, we believe they have extreme relevance to our lives. And so would You make that clear and we pray that You would also help us and empower us and change us through Your Word, as we hear and think on these things. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Today, uh, we begin a 10-week series uh, that I'll introduce in a second, but the reason why we're doing 10 weeks is because uh, we've been studying the Gospel of John for many, many years. We want to get back to the Gospel of John, but we want to get back to the Gospel of John right before Good Friday and Easter, because we're in the crucifixion portion, you remember, and we want to study that and then study the resurrection in that very meaningful time of the year. And so we're doing 10 weeks up until that point uh, when we'll get back into John. So this series has a few purposes. Let me unpack them quickly. Uh, one of them is to remove biblical illiteracy um, that plagues our generation Many who even attend church weekly, who are even involved in midweek Bible studies, um, don't know the Bible, don't know basic uh, stories about the Bible, um, are largely uh, ignorant about much of what's in the Scriptures. That doesn't, that's not saying that we aren't an intelligent generation. I think we could list off many people, uh, different movie star relationships, Um, all sorts of the starting lineup for Alabama football, potentially. All sorts of information uh, could be given. But ask who uh, Abigail is. 
or who Hagar is or Gideon and to give something of their life for the significance that they bring and um, no clue. And um, something I've learned is that there's actually, this is a little bit of a weird thought, but there are some who are very, very, uh, they they could debate in all the intricacies of, say, justification by faith. Or, or some other theological thing, but come to just normal Bible stories, just basic Bible knowledge, and there's an ignorance. And, uh, and so as pastors, we want to constantly work against this, one, by just saying to everybody, read the Bible front to back over and over again, know your Bible, um, and put reading plans together so that we can do that all through the year. But then we also want to do series like what we're doing and so what this series is, is seeking to do is to take Old Testament narratives, specifically Old Testament characters, people, and to look at the problems in their lives that are common to us. Um, and to say, look, a few thousand years ago, this person had the same problem that we have. And, and to identify, uh, for example, Abigail's hard marriage and first Samuel 25, or Hagar's suicidal depression in Genesis 16, or Moses' parenting, uh, Moses' parents' parenting approach um, in Exodus 2, or Samson's narcissism in Judges 16, and on and on. And, and so the relevance of these passages for our problems today is vast. And so we're calling this common problems um, because what happens is Uh, The problems don't change. There's nothing new under the sun. The terms change. The labels that say the DSM, uh, the manual for psychological terms, the official manual, will put new names and labels on things that are the same problems that we've always had. And it makes it look like we're experiencing all these new things, but really, uh, these are just different names and labels for the same problems we've always had. And what we need is to see that the Bible uh, has something to say about all of these things. And there's a sufficient word in Scripture uh, to help us, which leads to the third purpose of this. Um, It is to say, biblical counseling then, if all that's true, biblical counseling is not only a legitimate form of counseling, it might be the most legitimate form of counseling which we would say it is. Um, we, we don't uh, need a lot of the new uh, atheistic-based systems and structures to be able to address human problems that have existed for thousands of years that not only does the Bible show the problem and diagnose the problem, the Bible gives the solution, it gives the antidote, it gives uh, the grace and the help to address those problems. It really is sufficient um, for many, many things that we, we struggle with. And so we want to just take 10 weeks, unpack some of these things uh, from the Old Testament, and try to make connections uh, to our lives. So as we begin this series, what I want to start us with is a very, very significant problem. Uh, this is what we would call the problem of strength. The problem of strength. Um, I'm aware that the world doesn't think strength is a problem. I'm aware that many Christians don't think strength is a problem. 
I, I think that many Christians and, and many would even define strength as the absence of that which is weak. But is that, God, is that how God thinks about strength and weakness? I mean, last week, a bunch of people, many people, started New Year's resolutions basically going, I want to be strong spiritually. I want to be strong physically. I want to be stronger uh, regarding this or this or this or this. Increased strength is behind much of this. And I'm standing here uh, saying your most fundamental problem may not be weakness, but strength. Uh, I'm suggesting that in many of our cases, our problem isn't that we're too weak, but too strong. And if we know anything about God's economy and how He functions, He often likes to flip on its head the world's system and the world's categories and the world's way of understanding and saying, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. I don't see things and judge things the way that you do. And, um, and so I would ask that you would throw off or be at least open to throwing off some of the things your parents may have taught you, some of the, certainly the, many of the things the culture's taught you, even some things that you've learned in church, in order to legitimately go to the Scriptures and see if the Scriptures might cause us to rethink our approach to strength and weakness. Um, because re- I really think there's people moving in the wrong direction on this. Things that they're calling gains, things that they're calling increases, things that they're calling I have grown and become stronger, they're actually moving in the wrong direction without realizing it. It's very possible and it happens all the time, putting tons of money and time into uh, even spiritual disciplines, but moving in the wrong direction. Putting, uh, trying to get stronger when what they should recognize is that place of weakness might be exactly where they need to be in order to make the progress they want to make. Um, and so, look, we, we just had uh, brothers and sisters stand before us. We just brought in these new members. It is tempting for us to think, look, we brought in new members. We're getting stronger. Maybe... Maybe not. I know a time when this church had 30 people and we were quite strong because we were weak and we knew it. When you think you're strong, that's not a good place to be. And, and we need to assess these things from God's vantage point. And I think a really helpful place to do that is Judges chapter 6, uh, the story of Gideon. So if you'd open up Judges 6, if you're not there, I'm going to walk us through these chapters. Uh, it'll be a lot of Scripture. I'm going to move quickly uh, and, and go verse by verse through this. Judges 6, verse 1. It says, The sons of Israel did what, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Seven years they're being judged by God through the Midianites and the Amalekites, Uh, who are a constant kind of thorn in their side, uh, an opposition to them, not only spiritually uh, affecting them regarding idolatry, of Baal worship and uh, influence in that regard, but physically they're raiding Israel's land, destroying their crops, stealing their livestock, 
to, to such a point that people are trying to do their domestic duties or their jobs secretly. They're, they're hiding uh, out of fear of the Midianites raiding them. The, the Midianites are basically bullies uh, with way more people, way more resources, way more military power uh, than Israel could ever defend themselves or retaliate, and so they're doing whatever they want to do. And Judges 6.3 says, Whenever the Israelites planted the crops, the Midianites and Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them, and they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza. And leaving no sustenance in, it, in Israel, and no sheep or ox or donkey, they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. They and their camels would not, uh, that could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. So Israel's being ruined by them, not only spiritually and physically, but even financially. So this is, uh, to put it in capitalistic terms, uh, this is Walmart <laughs> moving in and, and shutting down all the small businesses. Um, and uh, I, I think capitalism is generally a good thing, but this is the nasty underbelly of capitalism that the little guys can't survive uh, against these big uh, powerful entities. And, and so Midian, Midian isn't, uh, isn't just a city. Midian is a group of nomadic, uh, nomadic tribes, uh, numerous cities. It's a whole culture and movement, very influential in the ancient world. And so it wouldn't be right to compare Midian to, say, China, right? That's a decent comparison because they both have militaries. There's numerous... Uh, uh, cities that make up what we know as China, but it's not like China in that you could compare them to this cultural force like an Amazon, like Google, right? Like a, a big pharma company that has all this cultural and financial power. Ernest Axel, an uh, Old Testament professor at University of Bernin, said this, he had a theory. He said, the Midianite territory lay along the Mediterranean coast it allowed them economic trade along that route. And he suggests that the Bronze Age collapse disintegrated the international trade, driving the Midianites to raid nearby peoples, which is how they gained their power, their wealth, um, and they became extremely powerful being on that coastal region uh, when the Bronze Age collapsed. They capitalized on it all financially and with military power. And now here's Israel, this little tiny nation sitting next to this powerhouse uh, cultural force right next to them. And God is going to use Israel to overthrow this, this massive nation. Look at verse 6. Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And that's maybe the most significant moment in this narrative. They cried out to help from the Lord. When was Israel saved from Egypt? When they cried out to the Lord. When were you saved from your sins? When you cried out to the Lord. They cried out to the Lord. And verse 7 says, When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. God often answers our prayers by sending someone to speak His word. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you. 
and gave you their land. And I, and I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. And this is the book of Judges, okay? Overview of the book of Judges. God gives them the land. They sin. Because of their sin and rebellion, God uh, allows one of the ites, Amalekites, uh, Midianites, one of the ite nations, pagan nations, to oppress them. To, to uh, be a, a form of discipline to Israel until they eventually cry out to God, ask for mercy, and then God sends a judge or a deliverer uh, to redeem them and to bring His blessing upon them again. So when, when you hear judges, don't think like what we think of judges. They sit in a, a legal, judicial uh, courtroom and make these are better translated deliverers, saviors um, that God raises up to deliver His people from His judgment, from His judgment. Verse 11 says that He, uh, Gideon, is beating or sifting the wheat in the wine press, which is a hole in the ground. Why is He, why is he in a hole in the ground sifting wheat? I don't we're, many of us probably aren't farmers, but uh, you don't sift wheat in a hole. You sift wheat up where the wind blows so that the chaff uh, from the wheat can blow out and you'll have more pure wheat. Um, you want the wind to be a part of the sifting. He's down in a hole. Why is he in a hole? Well, it says he's hiding from the Midianites. So he's fearful. So the angel of God comes to a man who is full of fear, hiding. Verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Interesting. (laughs) The man who's hiding from the mighty men of valor in the hole, the angel says, O mighty man of valor. Uh, Which many of the commentators say, uh, there's got to be some irony in the the angel's words here. Uh, And certainly they're prophetic as well. Uh, verse 13 says, he says, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? So he's, he's doubting what God has done. He's not understanding why Midian is oppressing them. And then he says this, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, this pre-incarnate Christ figure in angelic form, the Lord said to him, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And so look, uh, Israel would not have picked Gideon. We would not have picked Gideon. Uh, no one would have picked Gideon. He's questioning God. He's fearful. He's worried. He's making excuses. I'm the weakest, which isn't humility. It's pride. It's fear. Um, And then God looks at Gideon and goes, yeah, that's why I'm picking you. Because you are the weakest. I have identified that. I found you in a hole. Hiding. You're you're not the strongest person I could have found. I, I picked the weakest on purpose. And not just physically weak or something. He is 
His faith is weak. Look at verse 25. That night the Lord said to him, pull down the altar of Baal that your father has. See how it's influenced even Gideon's own family. There's Baal worship in his own family. And cut down the Asheroth that's beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God in the top of the stronghold there. So Gideon took the ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So he obeyed, but he obeyed in fear. Everybody knows it's Gideon in the next morning. They find out and they rally together. The Midianite and Amalekite and people of the east gather their troops together. They're ready for battle against Gideon. And it says in verse 34, this is significant, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And then something else is significant, verse 36 to 40, Gideon, full of the Spirit at this point, does something that doesn't look so full of the Spirit. He asks for a sign. He said, Lord, I don't know if what you're saying is really true. He's doubting God's word. He says, if the ground is wet and this flea, or if the ground is dry and the fleece is wet, then I'll know you're talking to me and you'll do it. And he makes a deal with God, which is not a commendable thing, but God is gracious to him and even works through this, uh, I think, sinful request for a sign. That's chapter 6. As we move into chapter 7, the plot thickens, and you have from the south, you have Israel's uh, little small army made up of some volunteer troops. All right? Volunteer troops. These guys can't be that good uh, to do what they're about to have to do. Led by Gideon, who uh, is not a great military leader. And then in the north, you have Midian's massive, tactically trained army. Uh, who knows how large we have these descriptions, as much as the sand of the sea, hundreds of thousands of troops. And verse 2, it says, The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give Midian, the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Tell the people, whoever fearful, uh, whoever, whoever's fearful or, or scared, let him run home and hurry. And 22,000 people returned. So he is left with an army of only 10,000 people. And the question I'm asking when I'm reading this is, how did he even get 32,000 to begin with? Why would these guys volunteer to go with Gideon into battle in the first place? I think it was peer pressure, you know, a father goes and then the son's like, man, if my dad's going, I got to go. And then the uncles and the cousins and everybody goes. Um, And then he gives them a chance to leave. He says, anybody who's scared, you can go home. No shame. We won't tell anybody. We'll make an excuse. We don't know what they said. But he gave them an out. And 22,000 took it. And only 10,000 are left. And that's a significant downsize. It says in verse 4 that God said the people are still too many. So 10,000 is too many. Take them down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you will set by himself. 
Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. Um, So you have some drinking like dogs. You have some more civilized in how they're drinking. And this is apparently how you will determine which men go into war with you. And... um, I would imagine Gideon's servant who's with him in this narrative is watching this and maybe Gideon looks over at him and says, so what are, what's the count? How are they drinking? And he goes, well, uh, 300. And Gideon may be thinking, oh, okay, well, 300. We can afford to lose 300. You know, um, that's not very significant. Loss of our strength. And he's like, no, 300 is the deduction. It's not the deduction uh, 9,700 is the deduction. We have 300 for battle. And <laughs> you can imagine it, it, it could be silent for a moment as they're looking at these dog-lapping men that they're about to take into battle. And then they look off at the horizon, uh, way off in the darkness, they see over 300 campfires in the camp of Midian and just a sea of tents of soldiers that the next day they're about to go against. And if, you know, again, we don't know what was said privately other than what's here, but maybe there was a conversation even between Gideon and his servant where the servant, uh, or, or Gideon says, 300. 300 soldiers is not what you take to battle. That's the amount of men you would take to carry the luggage for those who are going to battle. And if one of them had any knowledge of the Lord in that moment and any confidence in the Lord, they might have said, but what if the Lord is the warrior going to battle and the 300 are just to carry His baggage? But nobody laughed when the Lord said in verse 7, with 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands And let all the others go home. And so Gideon goes to bed that night, I'm sure plagued with doubt that he's going to die the next day, terrified uh, that his army went from 32,000 to 300. And God wakes him up at night. Verse 9 says, The same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp. So God has now told him, go sneak out the night before the battle and go into the camp of the Midianites. I just want you to go in there and just see what's going on. Look, courage. (laughs) Gideon does this, which is an incredible amount of courage, but it is an absence of fear. We know courage can still have fear in it. Uh, Gideon goes, even being fearful, and listen to how gracious God is in verse 10. He says to Gideon, but if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. There's the mercy of God. God doesn't even say, Gideon, once you get all that fear out of your heart and you finally get some courage, then go down to the camp. He says, Gideon, if you're scared, just take your servant with you and you can go. It's a very merciful act from the Lord that he doesn't wait till Gideon gets strong. In Gideon's weakness, 
He allows for the weakness because he knows I'm going to send you. I have a plan. Your weakness isn't going to thwart what I'm about to do. In verse 10, it says that if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, a man was telling a dream to his comrades. So listen to this dream. He says, they're overhearing this dream. I dreamed a dream. A cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. All right, that's what Gideon hears. (laughs) Um, Not the most flattering way that he's about to be described. Listen to the interpretation. The other guy hearing this dream says, this is the sword of Gideon that God has given into his hand and all the camp. So Gideon is compared to this, uh, this cake that rolls into, not rides into as a mighty warrior and levels out the camp. A, a cake that rolls into Midian and flattens it. That is representative of Gideon. And listen, verse 15. As soon as Gideon heard the dream, And its interpretation, he worshipped. It's this overwhelming sense, I don't have to move to the right or to the left. I can't mess this up. The Lord will win this battle. Guys, do you live discouraged? Pressured, overwhelmed with the impossibility and the size of the enemy? that is against you? You just walk around. You're going to wake up tomorrow and just be overwhelmed with all the forces against you, how hard everything is, how you can't do what you have to do? Or will you be like Gideon who worshipped because he realized the battle is ultimately won? And he worships. And that worship, that type of confident worship, always leads to action, not passivity. Look what Gideon does. He returns to the camp of Israel and says, Arise, get up. The Lord has given Midian into your hands. And he divided the 300 into three companies. So he says 100, 100, 100. And listen to the artillery he gives them, the weapons. Take a trumpets, torches, and some empty jars. Trumpets, torches, Empty jars. Gideon said, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, you blow it. And then he tells them that they'll smash the jars together, then they'll run with their torches and their instrument in their hand uh, at Midian and yell for the Lord and for Gideon, which is uh, humorous until you realize it worked. Um, The Midian army fled Uh, Many of the other troops uh, gathered and helped this 300 and joined them in battle, and the Midianite powerhouse fell. And the rest of Scripture refers to them as a defeated people. So Psalm 83, three times in Isaiah, Habakkuk 3, keep referring to Midian as a fallen, defeated people. Uh, In Judges 8.28 it says, So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. 
And so, what is God doing? God has used Midian to suppress, to judge, to punish Israel for these years, and now God is using Israel to punish Midian. See the sovereignty of God and how He orchestrates nations. This is not mythology, guys. This is not a movie. This is history. An actual battle. There's archaeological proof of this battle. We know this occurred. It says it here that God did this. And and get how God is approaching this. God is saying, I can't run the risk with 32,000 soldiers that they win this battle and think that they did it. Can't run that risk. All glory goes to me. I fight the battles. So I'm going to make them as weak as possible so that I get all the glory and nobody goes, oh, Gideon's a, a great military general or Israel is so powerful. He makes them as weak as possible so that everyone will say God won the battle. That's how our God thinks. Get inside the mind of God. He's passionate for His glory, not yours. His goal isn't to just make you strong, 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 so that what? You boast in your own strength? He he keeps us weak so that He always gets the glory. When will we learn that God operates like this? All through Scripture. He takes uh, little, small, weak David against Goliath and takes down the giant. Joseph, the youngest of twelve brothers, uh, thrown into a pit for dead, put in prison. A nobody. Nobody knows who he is. God raises him up as the leader of Egypt. The nation of Israel itself was chosen because they were the smallest and weakest of all nations. The twelve apostles, uneducated fishermen, selected to not only start the church, but change the world. Why does God choose weak people? Because when twelve weak men change the world, you don't praise the twelve weak men, you praise the God of the twelve weak men. When an army of three hundred takes down the Midianites, you don't praise the army of three hundred, you praise the God of that army. Look, people, we say, listen to how relevant this is. You hear people say things like, God will never give you more than you can handle. (laughs) Now, does that fit the story we just heard? For Gideon, I don't think he could handle this. I don't think anybody in that army could have handled what God put before them. They could not handle it. And they were supposed to realize that. I can't handle this. God put them in that situation so that they would see their weakness and that He could be their strength. And one of, you know, this is a very hard lesson for churches in, I would say, especially more Western context. And I'll say that uh, Corinth was very, uh, the Corinthians thought a lot like we do in in many ways. And they did not understand what we're talking about here. The book of 1 Corinthians, Paul starts and he's teaching about strength and weakness. 2 Corinthians, he ends talking about strength and weakness. And um, they struggled because they thought, okay, here's the logic. God is strong, and so wouldn't he want to pick strong people to serve him? Strong God, strong people, that's the formula. 
And so Paul is very burdened that the Corinthians don't understand how God thinks. And he starts boasting of his own weakness, bragging about his own weaknesses to them. So he, two examples, 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 32 at Damascus, Paul says the governor was trying to kill me. And so some of the brothers put me in a basket and let me down through the window of the wall and I ran away. Not a flattering story, but it does show his weakness. In chapter 12, verse 7, he says, To keep me from being too elated or prideful from the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Which many think that thorn was probably related to his health, maybe his eyes in some way. And look what Jesus says to him. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Jesus said to Paul, therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. What is the secret of power in Christ resting upon us? Jesus said, my power is made perfect in weakness. Not once you get out of weakness and get strong. In the weakness. That is not how our world thinks. That is not how we usually think. That is how it actually works. It's often our weakest moments that God has a chance to magnify His power. Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. In the moment of need where you are going, I can't help. That's the moment He wants you so that He can supply the strength and get the glory. And you can't go, well, that was just me. I've just really disciplined myself. I'm, just, I'm that type of person. I've got all this experience and knowledge. and You can't do that when you hit rock bottom. And I'm not even talking in every area of your life. Maybe just one area that plagues you. Can you see even that one area? So look, don't ever do this. Please don't ever do this. Don't say, God, would you make me weak? You are weak. Ask, if anything, to see where your weaknesses are. And He will, he will show you. It's a dangerous prayer to pray. But that's what we need is a recognition of our weaknesses. There's only two types of Christians. Those who recognize their weaknesses and those who don't. They all have them. Now I want to I end with something that Jesus said here because this is very relevant. Um, Jesus, talking about His kingdom, He didn't say blessed are the strong in spirit. He said blessed are the poor in spirit. The two Beatitudes that are most connected to weakness, I would say, is poverty of spirit and meekness. And what's interesting about poverty and spirit and meekness is that Jesus finishes those two verses like this. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Extreme power and dominion and authority given to those who are weakest. So Jesus doesn't say that the, the weak and the meek and the, and, the, and the poor of spirit, they get into the kingdom kind of in the back door because God feels so bad for them because they're, you know, look how pitiful they are on the, in the back door. Don't want to leave them out there. I'll just bring them into the kingdom. That's not how it works. It's not God's pity because they're just so pitiful and all the strong Christians made it in the kingdom easily. But, the, but these poverty of spirit meek ones, well, we'll just let them in because I feel bad for them. No. Jesus doesn't let people in as victimized, you know, uh, well, I got my victim card. Can I, can I get in, Lord? It's, he doesn't, it's not how it works. The poor in spirit, the meek, are not those with victim cards. It says they are blessed. They're happy. There's a contentment in their inability. They know they aren't enough. They know they're mistreated. They're persecuted for righteousness, it goes on to say. They suffer with Christ. And yet they make it in because their strength is in the Lord. Their confidence is in the Lord. And it says theirs is the kingdom. And they will inherit the earth. So the self-reliant will be shown too weak to stand on judgment day. Because God opposes the proud and He gives grace to the humble. And Christ, listen, Christ will mock the self-sufficient. He will break their kneecaps and bring them down. And they will recognize they are not what they thought they are. He alone will be and is exalted. I, I really think Darwin was on to something with something he said. Um, he said, uh, survival of the fittest. Remember that? I think he's right. Survival of the fittest. Only the strongest survive in the end. The problem is, he doesn't understand strength and weakness. Darwin didn't understand what it meant that the strong are the only ones that stand in the end. He flipped it. He thought strong and weakness in the, in the worldly terms. But according to Christ, the strong really are the only ones. But they're not strong in themselves. In the strength of their own might. They put their dependence, their confidence in Christ. And they are the ones who will inherit the earth. Gideon was weak. And God worked with power through him. Listen, because he trusted God and obeyed. This is key. I, I don't think I'm going to faithfully preach this passage unless I, I say this last thing. The obedience is key for Gideon. He is not a passive man. He is not a lazy man. He's not a man that goes, oh, I'm just weak, so I don't have to do anything. He's obeying the Lord. You know that... Um, that song, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Well, that's true. But it could also read, uh, trust and obey, there's no other way to see power and weakness than to trust and obey. The power and weakness comes through trusting and stepping forward and obeying. The obedience 
is what comes out of faith and trust in the Lord. And how do we know that Gideon was actually acting in faith and obedience? Hebrews 11.32 says this. Hebrews, New Testament, 11.32. Gideon, through faith, conquered kingdoms. Gideon, through faith, conquered kingdoms. The meek shall inherit the earth. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Guys, we, we will face so many tribulations and trials on this earth, in this fallen kingdom. But the meek, the poor in spirit, dependent on the Lord, taking that next step of obedience, will inherit the earth. And they are the only ones who will inherit the earth. They are the strong who will stand in the end because their strength is not in themselves and they know it. And that is our destiny. That is our, our calling. Guys, as we go to the table, um, not only are we weak, uh, not only was Gideon weak, Jesus Christ weakened Himself. Jesus Christ weakened Himself. As we go to the table, I want us to remember Philippians 2, verse 7 that says, He emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He got that weak. Even to the point of death on a cross for our sins. Therefore God highly exalted Him, gave Him all the strength and power, bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Um, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you come as one who is weak, uh, and you come to one who was weak for you, and now has been made strong, and is ready to give you uh, His strength. And uh, those who will not be coming, those uh, who are not believers or baptized, um, there are in your red bulletin, some meaningful prayers. I would encourage you to pray those um, in this time, and this will be a meaningful time for you as well. Take a few moments and prepare, and uh, we'll come to the table together. Father, um, Lord, Jesus Christ, the greater Gideon, the one made weak to only be shown to be strong, and a mighty warrior. You went to the death for us. And now You've risen to glory. And You have all strength and authority and power. And we praise You. And we pray, Father, as we come to this table that we would not come whimpering. We would come rejoicing because Yours is the victory. Lord, that we would proclaim Your death and Your resurrection until You come. Lord, put our confidence in You again at this table this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.